I'm Alex Wong, and the Wong Takes start now. Hi, everybody. It's the Wong Takes, and it's Tuesday, February 26th, 2019. Here in the Bay Area... We are getting plenty of, well, dusk. I was informed yesterday and today that there would be a torrential downpour. There has not been a torrential downpour. Instead, actually as I speak it may have started raining. Instead, it's just been kind of cold and gloomy and not perfect, uh, being happy weather. But nonetheless, we are doing okay here on the long takes. We are moving toward the tail end of the NBA season now that All-Star Weekend is done. That means we've got about eh, 25 or so games left on the regular season calendar, and that is before we head into the playoffs. It's really starting to hit that the college basketball regular season is winding down. It seems like just yesterday we started the season in, what, November, but it's already coming to the end of February, start of March. I love Champ Week. Might cover that next week or two weeks from now. I love March Madness. If you were with us last year, you probably know that, and we plan to cover it again next or this year, sorry. But in the meantime, we've got some some things to go over, and it it is a lower point in the sports calendar, but that doesn't mean we don't have things to talk about. And so as we cross the two-minute mark, let's get underway. So first, we're going to talk about the game that happened last Wednesday uh, between the University of North Carolina and Duke University. And coming into this matchup, it was a one-versus-eight seed matchup. And this was one of the first times this year that I, it might actually is probably the first time this year that I sat down to watch a college basketball game. I don't often sit down and just make it appointment viewing, kind of like I do with football or my local teams. But this was appointment viewing. Uh, I mean, it was two of the best teams in the country facing off. And obviously... Wanted to see the Duke freshman, but that hit a lull 33 seconds into the game when Zion Williamson, the heavenly saint of basketball that he is, went down with a knee, or I believe it was a knee injury. Fortunately, it was only day-to-day, and he should be back soon, but... After that, North Carolina just went on a tear and wrecked the Blue Devils pretty much from wire to wire uh, and won 88-72. And, you know, obviously Zion being out makes a huge difference, and perhaps there's no better visualization of the wins above replacement stat than when Jack White came in for Zion and proceeded to brick every shot that he took, pretty much, at least from deep. I think he only had two points and they were free throws. But 
When people say wins above replacement is a meaningful stat, I think that's what they mean. <laughs> Compared to a replacement player, Zion Williamson is just off the charts, not only numerically, but definitely with the eye test. But I think this will cause... Uh, well, actually, first of all, North Carolina is the real deal. I mean, even without Zion, Duke has R.J. Barrett, the number one pick coming into the season. He may be the number two now. Cam Reddish, a consensus top, consensus top ten, probably even top five pick for the draft coming up. And Trey Jones, uh, who was, I believe, 15 rated coming into the year, but he's really put on a show and been the floor general to lead all those other freshmen. He's a freshman uh, himself as well. But the fact that North Carolina was able to dominate, especially in the paint, uh, they had no trouble scoring inside. Uh, and especially in a rivalry of this magnitude, um, to step up like that is something that means they're going to be a force to be reckoned with in the future, uh, especially come tournament time. But meanwhile, I think this will force, this whole fiasco is kind of, force the media to pump the brakes on Zion a little bit. Because this season, I mean... He's put on highlight reel plays and put on dunk shows, and he doesn't seem stoppable. But you look at his frame, and you say, wait a minute, that's a lot of stress on those joints. It's a lot of stress just to move that much and get that high. Now, obviously, the shoe breaking was a large, or was the reason for his injury. But you have to re-examine a little bit of so what are the downsides of picking him? And that's probably the biggest one is, is going to be the injury risk. I mean, we don't want to see like a Greg Oden type type scenario happen. Um, now, I wasn't fully sentient when Greg Oden was being drafted into the NBA and, and of course, falling out. But, I mean, they're both big men. Zion is more athletic than perhaps anyone this side of LeBron. But nonetheless, I mean... Anyone can be hampered by injuries, no matter how athletic. And I'll be interested to see how Zion returns from this setback, because it's one of his first setbacks under the spotlight. Now, I don't know too much about his Spartanburg days, but in this time that he's been the the superstar god personified type deal, he hasn't really faced any major setbacks, and this is this is a setback. So I'm curious if he will come back just as athletic. I know he'll come back hungry. He loves to play. I mean, that's what I like about him. He, he does things the right way. It's perhaps over or underused, but I think it's adequate here, or it's fitting here. Um, so, But I, I think he'll come back right, and I, I know that he'll be still okay. Um, but, but everyone pump the brakes a little. Also, the debate that this game sparked was the debate about player likenesses and the NCAA. Now, I've previously made some very incoherent points uh, about players getting played in the NBA or the NCAA, because to be honest, I didn't really think it through. I mean... If you pay one, do you pay, you know, walk-ons? Do you pay the guy at the end of the bench? How much do you pay him? How do you determine how much you pay him? Are we going to have bargaining and everything? But I think that the argument that everyone can get behind is that players should be able to profit off of their likenesses. 
In other words, they should be able to sign memorabilia. They should be able to appear in video games. They should be able to make money off their jersey sales. I mean, that's kind of just common sense. I mean, what's the danger there? That you're corrupting them to, I don't know, making money? I mean, I guess players today, I would say, or or actually, no, even college students in general are generally more socially aware perhaps than they were, uh, I mean, as a whole, as they were in the, maybe 50 years ago. So players understand what's going on. They're being exposed to the world of agents and high-profile deals and under-the-table contracts from when they're, like, in high school. I mean, they under, or, like, junior seniors in high school, they know what they could be making. Um, and that's come into the spotlight with guys like Nigel Hayes or, or other people who said, look, I, I go to the arena and I play in front of 20,000 people and I have this fabulous, you know, weight room and training facility and everything, and I can't afford dinner. Like, it's ridiculous that they can't make any money off of what they're doing because of, and it, it wouldn't be so gaudy if it, because then you can extend that argument to, you know, other other teams or, or like non-sports things, but it... it with the amount of money that these sports bring in, even for the minor ones, jersey sales are a big thing. Players should be able to make money. And it would not be super hard to make a streamlined system for this. I mean, establish rules. Like, they make X percent of their jersey sales. And they can make... I mean, it's capitalism. Let it happen. Because uh, people can get paid under the umbrella of the university. And that's not an issue. So... That's what I think. I think that's what... I think Zion's injury may get the ball rolling on this, but I'm not super confident. Um, I think it'll be something where it's just breaking down the wall until eventually, you know, until eventually the NCAA concedes. Topic number two is a little bit um, different today, but it's something that drew my attention as a... Uh, person who is interested in how games evolve. And that is a topic that has been brought up, used, criticized, praised, everything under the sun. The pitch clock in Major League Baseball. Now, the reason I decided to put this on the agenda was that last week, Max Scherzer, the pitcher for the Washington Nationals, who is... Former Cy Young winner, very good, experienced pitcher. Says he is fundamentally against the pitch clock. His words, fundamentally against. Now, I'm going to be honest. My gut reaction and... My, or my gut reaction was to be on the side of Max Scherzer. Because his argument was, to boil it down to the essentials... There is a rhythm to baseball, and there is a reason there is a rhythm to baseball. And that is that that is the way the game has evolved, and that's the way the game should be. And as a matter of principle, I, I kind of agree with him. I mean, there's a romanticism to baseball in that no one's being hurried, no one's being forced to... or there's no clock to bite on you, right? Things just happen when they happen. 
But I ran into this great article by Grant Brisby, who used to write for the McCovey Chronicles, which is the Giants, uh, San Francisco Giants individual blog on SB Nation, and now writes for, I think, broader SB Nation. Um, but I've always admired his work. And in 2017, he wrote an article entitled, Why Baseball Games Are So Damn Long. And this was before the 2017 season. And in it, he analyzed two games. Uh, one from the 80s and one from uh, the teens, I believe, 20 teens. And they had the same number of runs, the score was the same, they had almost the same number of hits, um, and the same number of mound visits, and they both went nine innings. And he went inning by inning, he watched the game, he took note of how long each thing was, or how long each event took, um, and kept track of uh, the minute-by-minute detail. And by the end of this extensive exercise, he deduced from from only two games, but nonetheless two very similar games, the primary reason the modern game was 30-plus minutes longer than the older game was because of the time in between what he called inactive pitches or pitches that don't result in a ball in play, say a called strike or a ball. And this says that in between pitches... Pitchers and catchers and batters are kind of, or pitchers and batters are kind of just lollygagging their way in and out of the batter's box, adjusting their caps. And it's not too much in the short term, like maybe three to four minutes per inning, but you add that up over nine innings and you've got your half hour. And so this is a clear argument in favor of the pitch clock. And it actually kind of, you know, turned me around a little bit because we learned, uh, I think it was in government, uh, that your opinion is swayed the most when it's a topic that is either new to you or you're not very informed about. And I was not super read up on this topic, and my opinion could swing again. But at the moment, I am in favor of the pitch clock. Um, as far as the fundamentalist like, rhythm to baseball thing, one thing I, I did think of as a counterpoint to that is... They added the in-between innings clock. If you notice, if you ever go to a ballpark, after the last out of an inning is recorded, next to the scoreboard there's a clock that counts down from, I believe, 240. And it prevents there from being too much warming up between innings or too much um, dragging their feet going into the batter's box. And I think that 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 is an example of some uh, a timing thing that is not very intrusive. I mean, I don't really notice it. Uh, players don't look like they're running to get in. It just looks like players realize, oh, they look at the clock. Oh, there's 20 seconds left. I should probably get on the rubber. I should probably step in the box. It's not a huge issue with people. The the, the apocalyptic thing that some purists would make it out to be. It's not that. And I think the pitch clock could be something similar. I mean... Especially once you consider the impact it will have. Well, a the facts. Um, this could this commission this informal study was done by one person on their couch. It it could totally happen that you commission a hundred people to each do a game, and you come back, or each do two games. You come back, you've got a large enough data set to work with. I'm not taking stats, but I think it's a pretty decent sized data set. Plus. 
this has also worked in the minor leagues. I mean, they have a pitch clock and no one really complains about it. So I think, and, and once you think of the impact on future generations, like, let's say people have grown up with the idea that there is a pitch clock, people who are five or six now, or, or, even, or even in high school now, and they go through college knowing that there's a pitch clock in Major League Baseball, and when they come up, that's just their reality. It's no longer a hot point. It's no longer something that gets talked about every day as, oh, should we implement the pitch clock or not? It's just their reality. People will adjust. I don't think it's natural for people to take a half a minute in between each pitch just because they're adjusting their cap or their cup or whatever, right? People will take less time if you tell them you have to take less time, and it will not have a large impact on their routine. The only ones who are going to be impacted are ones like Max Scherzer who already have their routine and, and have been and been successful in the major leagues for years and know how they have been successful and are a little bit superstitious and want to keep that. But and you can't grandfather people in, but telling people to change for this is not the worst thing. And if this really is the reason, if you know, the baseball, Major League Baseball commissions a study and that is revealed that that is a large percentage of what's slowing things down. It's no harm, no foul for me. Uh, the pitch clock, I think, should be implemented. It, it's already been implemented in the minor leagues, but coming up to the majors as soon as next year or two years from now. And maybe 20 seconds isn't the right place to start, maybe 25 seconds, but... Nonetheless, it's a concept that I think people should get in their heads. Because even if you put it at like 25 or 30 seconds, which is, um, I haven't done enough research, but it seems kind of high. If you get people that, with the idea that there is a pitch clock, they'll adjust better to it being reduced a little instead of just going cold turkey and going straight in. So that's my thoughts on the pitch clock. So our final major topic today I am going to put on my Homer hat for a second. Why, as a San Francisco baseball Giants fan, I think Bryce Harper should come here? A couple of things. First of all, you love the Bay Area. You've posted on your Instagram multiple times about how you want, you love people, you love the fans, you love the ballpark, you love the food, you love the setting. Why not spend your year here? Why not come to the Bay Area, get to hang out with all these wonderful people? I don't even know if Hunter Strickland is on the team anymore, but you guys can make up, I'm sure. That's number one. Number two, we've got a manager who is about to retire. And it's a twofold benefit for you. Number one, if you come here and you sign long-term, you come here, you can help a legendary manager go out the right way. You can help win Bruce Bochy, if not another title, at least get to the playoffs and have one last fun ride, or at least be in playoff contention in mid-September. Have one more fun ride, with, and learn from one of the greatest managers in San Francisco Giants history. Also, 
once Bochi leaves and the new regime comes in, you have a chance to be the guy. Or, at least not the guy, but you get to be one of the faces of the new team. Because you've got Buster Posey, you've got Brandon Crawford, but those guys don't have the power and the national recognition that you do. Well, Posey kind of does. But people don't think put Posey on those big lists of like best players in the league right now. People put you on that list. And so you will be probably the biggest name during our reconstruction. And so I think, I know he has a decent-sized ego, um, and that'll please that. But And I know he's not listening to this, so it's okay, I can say that. But I think that's why another reason he should come here. And looking at it from the Giants' perspective, Farhan Zaidi came in here as the guy who was going to revolutionize Giants baseball, right? He's the new young face. Um, But like any new GM or executive, you have to ingratiate yourself to the fans. And no better way to do that than with a big move like you could be making to get Bryce Harper. And I think the owners will will commit to that, the the amount of money that you're required to pay him. I'm not sure the Giants can offer the package that Philadelphia or the Dodgers, who have unfortunately made a run in this race, can. Um, But I think I'm banking on Harper's love of the city and perhaps some of the intangibles, uh, like, like Bochy's last year and San Francisco as a city. Because we will love you here, Bryce. <laughs> um, we haven't had a major home run hitter since Barry Bonds. Uh, we have not had a guy who can consistently hit 30, 40 home runs, heck, even 20 home runs since Barry Bonds. And so to bring you in here, I, I think would be would be a lot of fun. Plus, I mean, there's a short fortune, right? So there's that too. But I, I don't think the Phillies or Dodgers can match the ambiance and the culture of what we've got here, here in San Francisco. We've got a storied history. We've got a fan base that everyone loves. I mean, you never hear a player leave San Francisco and say, I hated playing in San Francisco. Every guy says, my favorite place to play, or one of my favorite places to play was San Francisco. And there's a reason for that, because it's a great place to play. So Bryce Harper, please, 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 please come to the Giants. Thank you, and good night. Just kidding. We still have the quick take left. Quick take, coming in pretty early today at 23 minutes. This is from Megan Armstrong of Bleacher Report. L.A., the Lakers, will chase Clay Thompson if the Warriors don't offer the max, a max deal to Clay Thompson. So, Clay Thompson has said that he wants to be a Warrior forever. Now, obviously, that is a, a uh, naive thing to imagine that he will forever live up to his word for that, and he knows that as well, because money talks at the end of the day, and he's got connections to L.A. through his dad, who I believe does uh, broadcasting for the Lakers. And the Warriors are, I don't know if they have enough room to give him the max, if the if Lakob is willing to 
you know, pay that much in the luxury tax. I personally think he is, and I think most of this core will stay intact. Uh, Golden State, when uh, fall of 2019 rolls around, rolls around. But, and I, I think the reason that you offer Clay a lot and you're, you're willing to maybe give him that max deal is because I don't think you can overlook the chemistry aspect of what the Warriors have developed. I mean, out of the core that really ran this run that was drafted, the only one who's left is Harrison Barnes. But maintaining three out of your four draftees in Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green is a remarkable feat. And it's fostered a chemistry that not only helps your team win now, but it helps attract people to your team. Why do you think Kevin Durant came here? He wanted some action on what Steph, Clay, and Draymond, and uh, Andre Iguodala for that matter, had helped make. Why do you think DeMarcus Cousins decided to sign here on a veteran minimum, no less? Because, A, he wanted to chase a ring, but also he, he, he knew what kind of culture that these guys had created and wanted in on that culture. So Clay ha having Clay Thompson has external benefits. And if you replace Clay Thompson with a less lethal shooter, it also, because it's not just Clay Thompson's shooting. I mean, he hasn't had a super hot couple of years, but the fact that everyone sees the 60 points in 20 or in three quarters or the 37 points in a quarter and says, that's Clay Thompson, that's that guy, you have to guard that guy, right? People are going to flock to him. And as a result, Steph Curry is open. Draymond Green, even when he's not hot, is open. Kevin Durant is open. DeMarcus Cousins is open. Quinn Cook is open. Alfonso McKinney is open. You build in these wide-open shots for guys to take. And the floor spacing is another crucial aspect that sometimes is overlooked that Clay Thompson is able to bring with the whole gravity aspect of things. So that's why I think the Warriors should offer a lot of money to Clay Thompson. Um, and it's going to be an interesting free agency season, to say the least. Um, I'm not sure that this whole core will stay together, but as a Warriors fan, well, it's really a homer season. I sure hope it does. All right, thanks so much for listening to The Wong Takes. As always, bit.ly slash thewongtakes, patreon.com slash thewongtakes, wongtakes at gmail.com. Rate the podcast and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. Send questions, leave voicemails as per usual. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast, and I will see you next week.